So the uh, Bible oftentimes looks like an enormous jigsaw puzzle. And in a way it is. And if you have ever done jigsaw puzzles, uh, my wife is really good at them. So it's actually kind of no fun to do them with her because she's like pop, 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 pop. I'm I'm sitting there like, you know, (laughs) takes me forever. But, um, you know, you have to work on it. takes a long time. For me, if it's like a thousand pieces, you know, it takes a long time. Uh, And you work on a section at a time. So you put the edge pieces in first usually, and then, you know, you pick sections. Um, And as time goes on, it starts to come together. And so you've got to be patient. The same is true with the scripture and certainly with uh, what we have undertaken here with the Gospel of Matthew. We're just at the beginning and there's a lot, you know, there's a lot here. It's, it's almost truly the whole Christian life in one book. And, and not just that, but really the history of mankind, the history of God's dealing with mankind is all here. So we have to be patient. It's like working on a big puzzle. And so each class, we're going to try and get one more piece in. Um, and you can't, you have to be like, I want to, if the piece doesn't fit, you want to pound it in? Yeah, you can't do that. It doesn't work. So uh, let's open up in prayer. Turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, where we'll begin. And we'll start with prayer, being grateful and thankful to God for his gift of his son, his gift of his word, uh, that we as his children can be humble and thankful before him. And that is the best way to learn his word. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that through this gospel we can see the origin of our Lord and how through your servant Matthew you have revealed how Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament, uh, not just the prophecies, but the history of the people that you called your son. We know, Father, that all people are created by you. But you have chosen one people, Israel, to represent you on this earth. Therefore, we can all focus on that. And that provides us focus so that we can see and learn from a particular point. And from that, we gather the, the lessons that we need to know so as to be and live what you have made us to do, to be and live and to do. And we are so grateful, Father, that through Christ our Lord, your gift to the world that we are, uh, all of us who have believed upon him, redeemed and saved and forgiven and given the wide open road to search you through your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that makes that all possible. We ask in Christ's name, amen. So we're uh, going to return to this chiastic structure which are the five prophecies. It's built upon the five prophecies that are taken in Matthew 1 through 2, uh, taken all together. And and actually, there's only four here because I'm leaving the virgin birth as kind of like an outlier. Uh, but we have uh, first in Matthew 2, 6, as you see it there, and you Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. 
For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Matthew uses a device here, rhetorical device, where he says, you're by no means least, which is a way of saying you are least. And, and therefore, Christ is born into an insignificant city. This is also true of Israel. So we're going to jump back and forth to this here as we open. Uh, but in Deuteronomy 7.7, 7, where we see the, the election of Israel, the son of God, who's the, not the son of God, but they're called this. We'll see in a second. In Deuteronomy 7.7, 7, it says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were fewest of all the peoples. And this is, what is God saying of them? Is that I didn't choose you because you were so awesome. And I chose you. You're insignificant. And Jesus is born into an insignificant city. And all of us are. You know, to whom of us is our birth of any significance? Even people who are significant in their birth, I don't know, like the the next born, well, the, there's no more real kings anymore, are there? <laughs> but back in the day, if you're like, I don't know, Queen Elizabeth's son, like King George, who was, you know, supposed to be, that was about the time that the monarchy kind of lost its power. But there was a time when, oh, the son is born, you know, ta-da, and it's the next king. But who of us are really significant? And when we do put significance on people, it's, it's only in comparison to everybody else here and in a fallen world amongst all fallen people. And anyway, it, you know, there's none of us really are, which is fine. You know, if you're a believer, you're actually grateful for that. Um, and then in the second line, we have this slavery, which is our dark past. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus had a dark past, but he lives this out in that he's in danger. You know, why is he flee to Egypt? Because Herod wants to kill him. And so he's in danger. And so while Israel went into or was born in slavery in Egypt, they were set free. And, and so Jesus here, uh, if you look at now Matthew 2.14, where we have out of Egypt I called my son. This is the third prophecy. This is really not a prophecy, though, as we recall. This is, this is a historical fact that is mentioned by Ho the prophet Hosea. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what was written by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Uh, <clears throat> again, this is a, from Hosea chapter 11, which is one of these glimmers of hope that we see in these prophets. Uh, all the prophets that are mentioned here by Matthew are all around, uh, most of them around the same era, meaning that Isaiah, Hosea, and Micah, the one we just read about in Bethlehem is from Micah, they all prophesied around the same time. And it was at that time when the Assyrians were coming to destroy Israel. And who called the Assyrians in? Now, the Assyrians are, they do this of their own free will, but God opened the door and gave them a little nudge. The Assyrians are coming because, this is way back in 700 and something B.C., that because God called them to. And the reason being, because Israel blew it. They blew it. 
out of Egypt I called my son is a glimmer of hope because out of slavery was Israel called. And Jesus comes out of uh, Egypt. Now, does Jesus experience slavery? No. But neither does he experience sin. And neither actually is his birth insignificant. If anybody's birth is significant, it's his. And so what he's doing here is living out the history of a failed Israel, which turns out to be the failed us. Because it's not just Israel who are failures. That's God's spotlight came on one people. But they represent us all because we're all the same. Then uh, as a result of the anger of Herod, then we go to the next, the sin. And now, of course, Jesus isn't a sinner. But because of his fleeing to Egypt, because of the fact that Herod got incredibly mad at the fact that the Magi didn't do what they said they would, which was to return and tell them where they found, tell Herod that they found the child and where he was living, so Herod could kill him. They, the Magi, were warned in a dream. They flee, and look at Matthew two seventeen. And what was, and what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. Now, what was fulfilled after the Magi leave? Herod, in his anger, uh, makes the decree that every male child in Bethlehem, not just in Bethlehem, but in the whole surrounding area. We have no idea how many children this would have been. But the infants are murdered, and uh, all males under two years old. And Matthew is led by the Holy Spirit to the prophet Jeremiah. So what has been spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet, was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in a great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Like we saw on Sunday, this would be like you and me seeing our children being carried away in cattle cars to some concentration camp, never to see them again. It's heart-wrenching. And this is the memory that God brings up through Matthew. Now, Jesus didn't go into captivity. Because what this captivity represents, you know, why does Israel go to Babylon? Why does this happen? This Ramah, this place where Rachel is weeping through the prophet Jeremiah, is because they deserved it. They, they were warned and warned for hundreds and hundreds of years. Jeremiah himself said that I prophesied for 23 years up to this point. And no one listened. And so what God threatened them with, warned them with, came to pass. And the Babylonians were not nice people. Uh, and so this is what happened. But Jesus, though, see, Herod is Babylon. Babylon is Herod in a metaphorical way. And here comes Herod to destroy the people. But Jesus escapes. He's the only one to escape. But the rest of the children don't. Now, we're not saying the children aren't guilty. You know, we can question all, all day, you know, why would God allow this to happen to these children? That's one of the mysteries of God. It's one of, the, it's one of those things that's Ecclesiastes and Job all wrapped up together. God, why in the world did you allow this and why do you do this? We don't understand it all. We're never meant to. But we know that Jesus escaped. So in the, in the, in the prophetic origin that is being shown here of Christ, he doesn't go into captivity because Jesus is not a sinner. But the rest of us, 
just not, you know, I'm not saying that cho- the children are sinners. All children, all of us are born sinners. But all of us have experienced captivity because of sin. We actually still do. Because sin is as evil as evil can be. And it doesn't matter how, you know, uh, as the Catholics put it, how venial or mortal the sins are. It doesn't matter the degree. They're all as incredibly evil as evil can be. And, and we're, at some level, put ourselves in slavery because of our bad decisions. Uh, Jesus does not, and he escapes. He escapes Herod. But no one else in history has ever escaped the captivity of sin, neither being born into sin uh, and the ramifications, the effects of sin. All of us have experienced it, which is truly like a captivity. Now, the last prophecy is, again, uh, going back to our chiasm, another insignificant city, which is Nazareth. And so in 22, Matthew 22, after being warned by God in a dream, now Joseph returns from Egypt because Herod's dead. Herod died an awful death, by the way. And Herod's son takes over, who is... As awful as Herod, so another dream comes to Joseph. Joseph gets a lot of dreams in these few months of his life. And he, they say, get out of there. And so he's warned and he goes to Nazareth. In, in Luke's account, it seems that Joseph and Mary are actually from Nazareth. We can't say for sure, but it kind of looks that way. So they return. But what is Nazareth? It's nowhere place. In fact, it's made fun of in the scripture in one passage. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, says Nathaniel? And so it would seem to us to be almost a colloquialism that was stated as, you know, Nazareth was a means, a a way of saying that you're from nowhere. Uh, Jesus fulfills the fact here that form his, now this is where Jesus grows up. This is his spends, what, 30 years, almost 30 years in this place growing up. Um, he's not a, his, his whole history disappears, and we know really nothing about it. He's, he's a carpenter's son, and it's a poor place, an insignificant place, and he grows up in anonymity, really. And, and you know, so, but this is true of all of us, and he's ridiculed for it. And so, and growing up in Nazareth is Jesus' way of going through, I'm going to go through ridicule like you do. I'm not going to grow up in a palace like Herod did. I'm not going to grow up in a palace. I'm going to grow up in nowhere. I'm going to grow up in lower class. I'm going to come from a place, and when I start speaking, people are even going to hear the accent in my voice and say, hey, he's a Galilean, and deride him for that. And the prophets would say this very thing, that he would be rejected, that he would be mocked, that he'd be ridiculed. Now, so we take Jesus, the fulfiller of all these things, and we kind of put him off to the side. There's our Savior who does all of this perfectly. And then leaving him there, we come over here and here's Israel and us. Like we're kind of in the same category. And Israel... You know, even at its height, 
which would have been after David, David after he died, had kind of left to his son Solomon uh, a conquered kingdom. Not, not his own kingdom conquered, but they, David conquered all the surrounding areas. Um, David defeated the Philistines. He, that was the last enemy. And so Solomon inherits a peaceful kingdom. Solomon doesn't see war for 40 years. It's incredible. He's hugely rich. And, um, and even then, that was at their height. The early years of Solomon were the height of Israel. Um, they were not a world power. Never once did they get even close to being something like that. They weren't like Egypt. They never became like that. They never became like, say, the United States of America. They never became a superpower. And always surrounded. God set them up in a place where they would be surrounded with really no natural borders. You know, boundaries like mountains or, you know, uh, rivers. Well, they had rivers, but it's a short one. You can hop the Jordan pretty easily in certain places. In other words, they're, they're left out there. God does this on purpose. Point being, they're insignificant even at their, their best. What about us? Completely insignificant. But here's the thing with Christ. When he's ridiculed for his insignificance, so-called, I mean, they don't know him to be the Son of God, so they mock him. You're from Nazareth. You're, uh, you're not educated. He didn't go to some university to get his education. You're just a carpenter's son. Even in his own hometown, they said, oh, we know who he is. That's Joseph's son. We know his brothers and sisters. We used to see Jesus running around as a kid. What is he talking about? And how did Jesus deal with that mockery? Perfectly. How do you and I deal with it? I'm not going to say perfectly for sure. I'm, not, I'm actually going to venture to say that we have not done it well. When we're mocked, jeered, denied, persecuted, generally we're getting a little bit angry. Maybe a lot angry. And so in all of these, his insignificance, he doesn't let it define him. You're born in Bethlehem, big, big wolf. No, I'm the son of God. Right? I'm the savior of the world. Uh, your slavery, right? You had to go to Egypt to escape Herod and then come back. And, and all that happened to him, he actually lived out Israel's history with perfection and doing all that the Father required of him, which Israel could never do, and neither could any of us. So when it comes to the details of Matthew 1 and 2, we haven't dealt with them yet, really. We haven't really looked at Herod, looked at the Magi in a little bit of detail. And so I'm leaving the detail a bit aside until we kind of iron down this. These five prophecies are really the backbone of these two chapters. It's not necessarily, actually at all, really, about the birth of Christ. I mean, about his birthday. You know, it is about his birth, but more so his origin and what that origin means to the world, what it means first to Israel and then to the world. Jesus, therefore, is the Son of God, and he lives Israel's history and fulfills all that he, meaning Israel, as God's son, because God calls him his son. We'll see that in a second. 
They failed to do it. And yet he relives it. That's why he goes to Egypt. That's why the children are murdered in Bethlehem, because it mimics Babylon destroying Jerusalem. I'm not, that, I'm not saying that God threw children under the bus so that he could make a point. I'm not saying that. Herod was free to do what his evil wanted to do, and he did it. And the same was true of, same is true of anyone. If you're going to give people free will, they can use it for good or they can use it for evil. If you stop every evil, then you, never, you don't have any good. There's no such thing as good if everybody does it uh, inherently. There's no choice in it. Therefore, we lose our humanity. If you have choice, if you have free will, there must be good as well as evil as well as good. Jesus is born, as we see in the genealogy, he's born the king in the line of David. He comes out of Egypt. He is delivered from the wrath of Herod. And so he is not made a captive of Babylon. He's called a Nazarene, meaning he's not accepted but persecuted. He's proclaimed by John the Baptist as God and the one who brings salvation. That we get to in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, he's tested in the wilderness for 40 days. Israel was tested in the wilderness for 40 years. Those 40 days are because Israel was in the wilderness 40 years. And he is, in these first four chapters, Matthew is showing us, because the jump from chapter 2 to chapter 3 is a gap of 30 years, roughly. Almost, it depends on how old he was when he started his ministry, but roughly he's about 30 years old. And so all that time, we have known nothing really about it. One little blip from Luke was the time, you know, when he uh, remained at the temple and was asking everybody questions. We see that. A blip when he's 12 years old. And then that's it. So all that he does is a reliving of the history of Israel. You know, not every single day, but his life in general, as Matthew shows it here, is exactly that. So look at Matthew 3.16, after Jesus gets baptized by John. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him, meaning John saw that. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Isaiah 42.1. This is the first servant song in Isaiah. This is my beloved son. <clears throat> now, Israel is called a son. God calls Israel, actually, his firstborn son in Exodus. And this is incredibly important to us because this represents when God calls them out of Egypt. When he calls them out of Egypt, they become a nation. This is where they are actually solidified. There are people in Egypt but they become a nation with a leader when they leave Egypt. And of course, the leader is Moses with a high priest who is Aaron and a priesthood. And God is going to establish all of that as they leave Egypt. So let's see this. Go to So before we leave Matthew 3, this is my beloved son, him. And I can't wait to get it. When we get here, we're going to see that God uh, identifies Christ that's my son, and he confirms him. He's my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. 
And God does. See, now that we're in Christ, all this this changes. This chiasm, chiasm. We become born again. Our slavery becomes freedom. Our sin becomes righteousness. Our life becomes the very house that God made for us. Uh, all of it changes. It remains the same, but the results. So if you're not born again, you're not in Christ, that all remains evil and drab and sinful and doomed. But as soon as you accept Christ as your Savior, in that moment, your whole life changes. And then it's wide open for you and me to actually become that which we were born to be, born again to be. So go to Exodus 4.21. God calls Israel his firstborn son. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. And God does. That's the last plague. Tenth plague. Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And certainly, Israel is a youth here. They're at their beginning. Sure, it's 400 years after Abraham. Or really, yeah, it's 400 years after Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it's here when they leave Egypt, as you see in Exodus 4. It's in Exodus 12 that they're actually going to go. And, uh, and I, I actually enjoyed finding this picture because they all, if you can see it, the faces are happy and we're free. And, and I'm sure they were. Free, free at last. Thank God Almighty, free at last. They're emancipated. And yet, it will not be long before they are miserable because they're not going to trust. So, how long were they a good son? Uh, They actually were not. A lot of those people are leaving with idols in their little bags and pockets and stuff, little Egyptian idols, we find out later. So, crazy enough, as the, the puzzle goes on, Oh, I didn't put that slide in. The Lord Jesus is called Israel. And so there's a lot, there's a lot of written about this. There's a lot of arguing about this. Is this actually, how could Jesus be called Israel? Uh, and then there's people take it too far and they say, well, if Jesus is Israel, Israel is no longer Israel. It doesn't say that. Don't go that far. <laughs> That's a conjecture. Uh, Jesus is Israel, and therefore the church is now Israel, and the church gets all the blessings and covenant promises, and Israel doesn't get any. Again, too far. It's, it's wrong. That's just completely wrong. The fact that Jesus is called Israel per Matthew 1, 2, 3, and 4 actually makes a lot of sense. So go to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, verse 1. And we'll see it. Thank you. 
so where this is all leading us, if Jesus is the fulfiller of the plan of God for Israel, then he is the fulfiller of all things for all mankind. See, through Israel, the promise was given. Israel, God just picks Abraham. We don't know why he picks Abraham. But he picks Abraham. And by picking Abraham, he said to Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. But Abraham fails. Isaac fails. Jacob fails. The whole family fails. Uh, and on and on and on. All the kings fail. Everybody in Matthew's genealogy is a failure. He specifically points it out. That David had, David begat, he didn't say begat, but David gave birth. He didn't give birth. But from David came Solomon, who is of Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. You know, he throws Uriah in the genealogy. Just to make sure, hey, don't you forget, even the great David, who's the greatest king Israel ever had by far, committed adultery and murder. None, None are qualified. So, so through Abraham, all the families of the earth are blessed. But Abraham doesn't really bless the world. Nobody does. Not even close. And here comes Christ. That's a, as I entitled this, the curtain opens now. When Christ comes, the curtain opens to a brand new era. Even though Israel rejected them, the kingdom program goes on and it's a brand new era of which we as believers are so fortunate to be members of. As believers, we are members of his kingdom and his family. That son, that beloved son, is uh, we are the beloved son, beloved sons and daughters of God. So anyway, look at Isaiah 49.1. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. And you see this, these islands in the prophets and from afar, generally speaking of Gentiles. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. We see in Matthew, that's exactly what happened. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. And that's uh, uh, also mentioned in Isaiah 11, that this uh, two-edged sword would come from his mouth. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. He has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. And this could be, we don't know exactly, but it could be a reference to the fact that he was, uh, he lived a pretty anonymous life in Nazareth, of which no one knows the history. He said to me, this is me, right? This is a first person. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. And I, But I said, I have toiled in vain. I spent my strength for nothing in vanity. And there in that line in verse 4 is his persecution, his rejection, his mockery, his being a Nazarene. Yet surely the justice due me is with the Lord. Notice what the Lord's response is to the fact that his work, his ministry, his servant, his service to Israel has been completely rejected. The same is going to happen to you and me when we serve and minister and we're rejected and no one accepts it. <clears throat> I wouldn't say no one, but some people, many people don't accept it. 
Yet surely the justice due me is with the Lord, and my reward is with God. Never with people, with God. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? Is it? The second part, I will also make you a light to the nations, so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Which goes back to verse 1. Listen, O islands. And so he's going to be a savior to bring Jacob back. Why does Jacob need to be brought back? Jacob was led to captivity. It mean, and, and of course they came back to the land. But what he means here, the prophet means, is they're falling away from God. They're, it's true of all of us, our sin. <clears throat> and he says, so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. So it's not just Israel, it's the Gentiles. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, in verse 7, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers, kings will see and arise, princes will bow down, also bow down, because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who ha- the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This one, in verse 3 again, he said to me, you are my servant Israel, can be no one else but the Messiah. These are There are several ther- theories that want to make it not the Messiah, but they all fall short. I, we could go into them, but they kind of bore me. <laughs> I think it's quite obvious here that this is the Messiah. Jesus is, therefore, Israel. So what does that mean? Well, it means, as we've seen in Matthew 1, 2, and 3 and 4, as a continue, that he's fulfilled what Israel couldn't. So when God says, Israel is my son, Israel becomes a rebellious, failed son. And then God sends his son, and that son becomes an obedient servant who in... uh, Here in the English Standard Version, verse 3, New American Standard says that uh, in whom I will show my glory, but it also can be rendered, and I think it's better here, in whom I will be glorified. Jesus glorifies the Father. Did Israel glorify the Father? No. Have you? No. Have I? No, none of us. It's not just Israel, it's everybody. Nobody has except for him. You are my servant. Look in his prayer in John 17, 4. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. How did he glorify the Father? I did everything that you asked me to do. As the Son of God. And uh, it still goes on here, and as we draw to a conclusion, this amazing plan that God has devised that actually runs through the entire Scripture. Again, it's the big puzzle. This is a piece. This piece that you're holding in your hand is Jesus' Israel. 
Now, I know for some people that's very exciting, and for others, they're like, eh, I know what, what else you got, you know. But even if it's a boring, you know, in some puzzles you're just putting in the sky, and it's everything's blue, it's like the hardest part, you still got to put it in. <laughs> you got to learn the whole scripture, and you've got to get your pieces right. Because once you get the puzzle starts to come together, if you've neglected certain pieces, it may be, like some people, they teach the Word and live the Word without the Old Testament at all. It's, a, it's a, been a movement for a long time that, you know, we don't need the Old Testament. We've spent all day here in the Old Testament. I don't, you can't do it without the Old Testament. You can't. It's a huge piece. It's many pieces. And so what the people have, I'm sure they're believers, and I'm sure they're at times have, uh, you know, a, a fairly workable ministry, I'll say. But their, their picture is missing too much. And so they don't see. And God wants us to see it all. We have to. We have to. Um, so uh, then, so now in our picture, Jesus is Israel, puzzle, peace. This one, when he comes, becomes the God-man who is the Savior, and we just read it here, of not just Jacob and Israel, but all mankind. And Matthew 3, 3, this is John the Baptist. He says this in all four Gospels, at least the, the this first two lines. Actually, he says this part in all four Gospels. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, Luke is the one Gospel that includes the whole quote. Matthew has a snippet of it. John has an even smaller piece of it. Mark has also a smaller piece of it, much like Matthew. Um, but what's significant here is that John the Baptist, when he's saying this, is quoting Isaiah again. And he's quoting Isaiah 40. And so, look at Isaiah 40. Since you're right there. Look at verse 1. And notice how it begins. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Um, uh, hold Isaiah, I had a question. <laughs> For like 30-something chapters, you have been condemning Israel, warning Israel, the Assyrians are coming, the Babylonians are coming, your idol worshipers, you have rejected it. What, is, what are you doing here? All of a sudden, it's like, and some people actually think that somebody else wrote this part. I mean, this can't be Isaiah. But God puts, just like he did in Hosea, and it, like Hosea is, you're evil, you're rotten, you're idol worshippers, you're going to all be destroyed. But out of Egypt I called my son, and I can't let you go. Hosea 11, this beautiful poem, is about a father who's angry, and then he's brokenhearted, and then he says, I can't be rid of you because you're my son. Micah, you're evil, you're awful, you're an idol-worshipping jerk son. <laughs> but out of Bethlehem, a prince will be born. 
and he will shepherd you. It's beautiful. And the same happens in Isaiah. Ahaz, you're an idol-worshipping Jesus. Well, not Jesus. They don't know Jesus yet. The Lord, Jehovah-rejecting jerk. But God has promised to give you a sign. A virgin will be with child. And you will call his name Emmanuel. They will call his name Emmanuel. Throughout the prophets, you can't, you read a while, depends on which prophecy, because some of the books are big, like Isaiah, but there's always hope. Same thing with Jeremiah. It's you're awful, you're evil, you're idol worshiping, I condemn you, I warn you. And then in Jeremiah chapter 30, I'm going to bring you home and I'm going to be your father and you're going to be my son and I'm going to give you a soft heart. You've had a soft head all this time. I'm going to give you a soft heart and I'm going to put my spirit in you and I'm going to dwell among you. And it's really out of nowhere. The same is true here. And as we're leading up to the days that Jesus is going to be baptized by John. John is proclaiming this. Now, uh, verse 3 is what he's proclaiming. So let's just read that and then we'll go back. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough road become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. In other words, all that will stop his salvation must be mowed down. And they were. And how God, you know, you read this language, let every mountain and hill be made low. It would sound like God's going to swoop in with his thunder and just crush it all. The way Jesus overcomes his opposition is through love and sacrifice and grace riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Not by his mighty arm. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. We saw in 49, uh, we saw this. That you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. John, again, this is Jesus isn't baptized yet. This is John's message as he's I got a picture of him, right? We had someone was nice enough to take a photograph way back then as John up there. But he's gonna this is what he says, the full quote, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Israel, be ready. Your Lord comes. Finally, he's come. But this message is to everyone in all ages. Every generation born into this world has to see it for themselves yet again. You can't, you can't get born again and saved because your parents were. You have to make the decision yourself. You have to hear the gospel yourself. You have to make that choice. All that all have learned before us. Every mature believer that has gone before us who has spent years, decades learning the Bible, we can learn from them, but we still have to learn it ourselves. Every generation has to start from zero. 
and learn. And he, he alone, is the one. Um, so, this is Isaiah 40. And Isaiah, you may remember, this was, I don't know, it must be like two weeks ago now, that when we were seeing that the virgin, the prophecy of the virgin will be with child, and you'll call his name Emmanuel, that's in Isaiah 7. And Isaiah 7 is Isaiah talking to Ahaz. He's a king. Ahaz's son, who is the next king, is Hezekiah. Just like Ahaz, Hezekiah has to deal with the Assyrians. They're invading. And we saw, and this is in Isaiah 37, 22, that it seemed as if it could be that this promise of this virgin who would be with child might actually be the city of Jerusalem. Because in 37, Isaiah 37, he says he calls the city a virgin. And the city has walls, and the people get behind the walls, and they're protected like they're in a womb. And here comes the Assyrians, and God kills them all before they can invade. But we found out that the city wasn't the virgin. Why is that? And she was eventually destroyed by the Babylonians. The city was wiped out. It couldn't be the city. And so this idea of a virgin with child after the destruction of Jerusalem, and we see at the end of chapter 39, Hezekiah dies. <coughs> and Hezekiah dies after making a terrible decision, by the way. He does shows himself not to be a savior at all, if anybody thought he was. And Isaiah 39, when it ends, it's kind of like this, I don't know, a void? Like, you ever, I, the movies I hate the most, I really love movies, but sometimes you catch a movie that's really good in the beginning and even midway through, and then whatever, the author didn't know how to write an ending. Endings are hard. But anyway, the whole thing falls off a cliff, and the ending's terrible, and you're just sitting there like, why did I just waste two hours of my life? And kind of like at the end, Isaiah 39 is kind of like that. Isaiah, Hezekiah dies. The promise is that the Babylonians are coming, and then that's it. And you're like, well, what happened to the virgin? And what happened to the city? And how are, what's God's plan for Israel? And then at chapter 40, Isaiah's book takes a turn. And here it is. And then 41. Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her welfare has... Sorry, welfare. Call out to her that... (laughs) Welfare's over. Pack it up and get to work. Call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In other words, you've already paid. And you're like, what? Wait, when? What? And then verse 3, a voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. This is John the Baptist. Sent ahead of Christ, which we know to be Christ's cousin, crazy enough. Sent ahead of Christ to tell Israel. And we find in the gospel that thousands of people are coming out to see John. Even the leaders. John became so popular that the leaders came out. And John called him a brood of vipers. 
yeah, he wasn't in a popularity contest. But this voice is calling, here comes your God. And who is this God? This is the one who fulfills all that Israel couldn't fulfill. As we saw in Isaiah 49, his name is Israel. That's how much he's fulfilled their history. He is called Israel. They were in Exodus 4. They were called, God says, that's my firstborn son. But the firstborn son called Israel rebelled. None of us could fulfill God's will. Who of us have done it? None. All have gone astray. This is clear in the scripture. All have broken the law. Yet, even though born sinners born in sin, we have been handed the Lord. Right? The Lord came for us. If he fulfilled Israel's history. Now, this is the, the wonder of all of this. If he's fulfilled Israel's history, he wants to fulfill yours, even though you're still making history. As, the, as it says in the Psalms, I forgot to look it up, but I think it's Psalm 120-something. David writes, you're, my, every, everything I've done, all my days are written in your book. God's writing a book every day with what you're doing. And that book can be written per the Lord. So as the Lord fulfilled Israel's history, he can, if you'll allow him, Fulfill yours. Let's think. We go back to our chiasm, and your birth is no longer where you were born. I was born in Providence, Rhode Island. I was born again, actually, in Providence, Rhode Island. But, you know, my birth is from where? Your new birth. Where is it from? Jesus said to Nicodemus, flesh is, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the what? Spirit is spirit. You're born from above. Your city is very significant. It's a new Jerusalem. Your past, your slavery. These are all the things that weren't your fault. Your abuse. All of us, some people have been abused so horribly. I, I hate to even say that all of us have been abused because it doesn't seem to do justice to what they've experienced. But everybody has been neglected in some way. All of us have wanted to be loved by somebody that should have loved us and we weren't. All of us were told things that were cruel. Like when we're kids. And we carry it with us. Jesus erases this. Not the memories. The memories are going to remain. He's going to put in your heart that every time that memory comes up of your abuse, you're going to say, you know what? He set me free. This is when, it's my Passover. Right? Passover is a celebration of escape from slavery. Your dark past, your sin. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? We're completely forgiven by the blood of Christ. So when the memories of your sin come up, say, yeah, I know. I'm a horse as you know what, but it does not define me. And where I live now, they made a home. Christ and the Father have made a home for me. If, that's, this is conditional now, if you love them and keep their commands. Keep their commandments. So, I'll go back to that. For us, we have to recognize that, you know, what are we going to accomplish in our lives? 
I'm going to say nothing, and I don't want you to take that the wrong way, but we're not going to accomplish anything other than his will. Me and my own, without the will of God, without the Spirit of God, without the Word of God, without the power of God, I have nothing to accomplish or nothing to contribute. Nothing. Anybody who says, look at what I've built. All right. See if you take it with you. Shove it in your coffin when you die. You're still going to leave it behind. It's all going to burn. It's nothing. Look what I've become. I'm this big, huge, famous person. You've accomplished nothing. For all of eternity, no one's going to remember you or your accomplishments. Nobody. It's not even, it's not even going to be recorded. What will be? The only thing that we can accomplish now is his will. Now, for some, that may be a disappointment. But with the right perspective, it's a bag of bricks taken off your shoulders. Just do his will. And his plan, which is already predetermined for you, will work itself out. What has God done for those who love him? Not entered into the mind of man, right? So what could you possibly accomplish that could be of any contribution to the one, the one who is the savior of the world, the one who is the king of Israel and really the king of all mankind, the one who fulfilled Israel's history, the son of God, the one who is the high priest, the one who is the prophet, the one, I've run out of fingers here, but the one who is the only one. What could I contribute to him? What could I add? Nothing. Now, as we continue, we'll also see, as we're accomplishing what he wants us to do, there's going to be suffering. And this is absolutely necessary. And we will say, as the Lord said, at least we hope, that surely the justice due me is with the Lord. And my reward is with God. All these things that God is going to do for us in shaping our new life may not turn out the way that we expect it. In fact, I can guarantee it won't. We have to trust in what he's going to do. And I say this to myself as much to anybody because I am astounded at how much expectation I have of certain things and how disappointed I get when they don't work out the way that I want. And what I do is I pray. And after I pray, sometimes I forget to pray and I just stay brooding. (laughs) And then after I come to my senses, I'm like, why didn't you talk to God hours ago? And in a way, I think he's drawing us to himself. Talk to him. Somehow, some way, your your omnipotent king is going to get the right information into your head so that you will be yourself again, the new creation, not that brooding old uh, old one. <laughs> Word came to mind, and I used my filter. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that you, through your truth, set us free. We thank you that we are free through Christ our Lord.
who we long to meet and long to see. But until that time, Father, we wait patiently for you to work out in our lives what your will would have. We ask that we follow it, and we ask in Christ's name. Amen.